you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38. Well, if you're familiar with this final Toledot, this final section of Genesis, you know that chapter 38, I guess one way to describe it would be very odd in terms of its placement, right? Very odd in terms of its placement. In fact, uh, so odd that a majority of uh, liberal scholars and, and theologians say that there's really no connection to this chapter with really anything um, in the Genesis world, but in particular, chapters 37 through 50. They say there's no connection. In fact, uh, Gerhard von Rad is a German theologian in the uh, 20th century. He's a leading Old Testament scholar sort of in that world. And I've got his commentary here, and I just want to read you just the opening sentence that he gives uh, regarding Genesis 38, and that can kind of put in your mind the controversy surrounding this chapter. So he says, Every attentive reader can see that the story of Judah and Tamar has no connection at all with the strictly organized Joseph story at whose beginning it is now inserted. So this is a leading Old Testament scholar, a, a liberal scholar. He says that this story that we'll examine this morning between Judah and Tamar, as it's typically been titled, that it has no connection at all with the Joseph narrative that we began with Weathers taking us through chapter 37 last week. So Von Rod said that there's no connection at all with, with this chapter. So my goal this morning is to prove that wrong, but then to get incorporated in our minds the value of this chapter as it relates to Genesis 37 through 50 and the Joseph narrative, but, but as it also sort of encapsulates what's going on in the entire book of Genesis, okay? So we need to block this out of our head, and we need to understand that this chapter is part of the chronology of the story, and it's placed here for a particular reason. And if you just see the title of the message, that is the main reason uh, it is here. So if you're taking notes this morning, the title of the message is The Character Transformation of Judah. And hopefully you have a handout uh, on your table or with you to help guide you through the text that we're going to work through. <clears throat> but if you back up one chapter... As we sort of get a running start here, if you look at chapter 37, verse 2, uh, you'll notice that verse 2 begins with, this is the history, or these are the records, the Toledot, of the generations of Jacob. Uh, but then notice, right after that, we come across one of Jacob's sons, and his name would be Joseph. And then that story ends at the end of chapter 37, look down at verse 36, with Joseph being sold in Egypt or exiled to Egypt. And then if you look at chapter 38, verse 1, it begins by saying, and it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. And then if you go to chapter 39, verse 1, Chapter 39, verse 1, picks right back up with Joseph. So what in the world is this text doing here? And what does it mean for the narrative or the narrative world and the plot line of Genesis? Well, in our time together this morning, I want to break up our time really in, in two segments uh, the first sort of 15 minutes will be more classroom style, and then the, the last part will be the exposition of uh, chapter 38. So what I want us to do in this opening portion here is I want to develop the Genesis world for us so we can see exactly what chapter 38 means and, and why it is here. Because there is much confusion, of course, in the liberal world, but I also think there might be confusion, not necessarily here, but even the, the broader evangelical world on why Genesis 38 is here. Why does it go from Joseph 
to Judah, to Joseph. What is the reason behind that? Well, to begin sort of the teaching classroom side of things, I want to work through three crucial standards of the narrative world. Uh, three crucial standards of the narrative world. And, and I promise if you'll stick with me here uh, that you'll understand why we are going to believe what we believe about Genesis 38. So I know we've talked about some of these points before, so I'm not trying to just belabor them to take up more time this morning, but, but I'm using this as a guide to get our thinking correctly when we come to 38. And I think once it all comes together... When it all comes together, this, this will make sense. So, three crucial standards of the narrative world of Genesis. You're familiar with this first one, the Toledot structure and formula. Again, I promise I'm not trying to beat this over your head, but I am trying to emphasize this because if we get the structure, we'll get what's going on in 37 that we talked about last week and then in 38 uh, this week. These standards will help ensure us that we're reading Genesis correctly. So how many of you guys, when the new year starts, you start over your Bible reading plan and you start from the beginning and you start working your way through? Okay, so there's a few in here that are doing that. Well, when you start in Genesis now and you come across this Toledot formula, it's going to help you sort of narrow your focus on what's going on uh, in, in the story. So let's do that here together. So the Toledot structure or the Toledot formula, um, it really has... Uh, three primary functions in Genesis, okay? Three primary functions, and I know John Manning went through a few of these last time, but let me just rehearse them for you. Uh, the first primary function that the Toledot formula serves is that it introduces narrative focal points. That's pretty easy for us to understand. Whenever we come across one of the 11 Toledotes in Genesis, so when you start this January 1, no, when you get to a Toledot, it's wanting you to narrow your focus in on something in particular. Secondly, the second function is that the Toledotes are meant to draw your focus and your attention to humanity and families. To humanity and families. Turn back to chapter 2. Let me show you this. Turn back to chapter 2 real quick as we sort of navigate through uh, these primary functions of the Toledot formula. All the way back to chapter 2, uh, verse 4. Now you're familiar with chapters 1 and 2 in the sense that those chapters teach about creation. Most of the time, we think of those chapters in an apologetics form. Like six literal days, seventh day God rested, yes and amen. Anybody that says otherwise is completely wrong. Well, that is, that is true. That's what Genesis is there for as far as an apologetic is concerned. But it also serves as an introduction to the story of redemption. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 4, the first Toledote that we get here refers to the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Then if you just scan down the rest of chapter 2, what does chapter 2 focus on? Not necessarily on creation, although that is part of it, but chapter 2 focuses on what? Yeah, mankind. Mankind. So you can see quickly here at the first Toledot formula, these are the generations of beginnings of the heavens and the earth. The central focus isn't on creation, although that is there. Please hear me, that is there. The focus is on families. The focus is on humanity. In addition to that, the text is already said to be fruitful and do what? Multiply. So we see that emphasis. If you turn over to chapter 5, verse 1, the second Toledot, and we're not going to go through all 11, but again, just to familiarize you with them. Notice chapter 5, uh, verse 1, the second Toledot. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And then after that, Scan your eyes down the remainder of chapter 5. Chapter 5 is just a list of what? It's a list of people and how long they lived and when they died. So there's a focus on uh, humanity. And then the last one here, turn to chapter 11. Turn to chapter 11. So you know that those first 10, 11 chapters start broad, referring to the nations and the entire world. And then when we get to chapter 11, go to verse 27, this is the genealogy of 
Terah, or Terah. And then that genealogy, or that Toledot, focuses on Abraham. So we've got a wide lens. Now we're zooming into a particular family. So Toledot's introduced narrative focal points. They also draw attention to humanity, to families. And then thirdly here is that these section headings or these Toledot structures track and trace the Genesis 3.15 seed. That God will send a royal, regal, kingly deliverer to save people from their sins. To save people from uh, their sins. So when it comes to the Toledot formula, now take that with you and, and map that on to Genesis 37 and 38. When it comes to the Toledot formula, if we're reading Genesis correctly, when we come to chapter 37, which Weathers took us through last week, and chapter 38, which we're going through today, we are being brought into a new narrative focus. We are being brought in to a focus on a particular family, and this family is connected all the way back to Genesis 3.15. All of that should be in our mind as we come to 37 and 38 and all the way through uh, the remainder of the book of Genesis. We're in the Toledot of Jacob. The Toledot of Jacob that doesn't focus on Jacob, but it focuses on his sons. His sons, that's ultimately what we've seen here, his sons. So we should be asking ourselves. Now that we're in this Toledo, the final one, whose son will it be that will pass on the 315 seed? That's the entire point of 37 through 50. 37 through 50, who will be the son? Now, uh, the next crucial standard of the narrative world of Genesis is the righteous line of the 315 seed. Again, we don't have time to work our way through this, but what characterizes the, the line of the 315 seed, who that seed will go through, what characterizes that line is righteousness, not perfection. I mean, we know that, right? I mean, there's been some messed up stuff going on in Genesis. It seems like every chapter, especially this chapter, right? But what characterizes the descendants of the 315 seed is righteousness. Remember Noah in chapter 6, verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah, who was a righteous man. Remember with Abraham in chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then you remember back to Genesis 32 and 33 when Jacob goes from a deceiver to being a man of righteousness who is relying upon God. Well, as we've been talking about Jacob's descendants, his 12 sons, we've already run into some problems with his sons, haven't we? Like some severe problems, really bad problems. Reuben, the firstborn, slept with Jacob's concubine. So we are told that he is unrighteous and he is deemed that way through the remainder of the book. Sons number two and three, Simeon and Levi, remember that incident with the Shechemites where they basically go in and just kill all the men there. So the narrative world deems them as unrighteous. So are you seeing where this is going? When the Jacob of Toledot start, or the Jacob Toledot starts in Genesis 37, Moses the narrator places Joseph first in the story. He is a righteous man. He's in the running for the promised seed. But guess what? We learned last week that he has been exiled to Egypt. Well, what happens if he never comes back? Genesis 38 is going to present to us the fourth-born son of Jacob, which would be Judah, and it's going to present him as an unrighteous character, and then by the end of the chapter, it's going to give us the fact that he is now a righteous character. So we've seen the Toledot structure, the righteous line of the 315 seed, the last crucial standard that we need to understand here is the parallels between the chosen and non-chosen lines. You've seen this. You know this. This is, this is review. 
But all through Genesis, we've seen the righteous line paralleled with an unrighteous line. Well, we see that at the beginning with Cain and Abel, Cain and Seth, the righteous, non-righteous. It develops even more when you get to Abraham and Lot, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Now watch, this last section, 37 through 50, it doesn't develop a righteous and a non-righteous line, but it actually presents two righteous brothers all the way through the rest of the end. That's why the story's often been called, not the Joseph narrative, but the tale of two brothers, or the tale of two sons. This is the first time in Genesis where we're gonna have two righteous sons that are the front runners to pass on the 315C. And just so you know, we don't get a resolution to that until chapter 49, so we've got a few more months to go. So, what is the theme of chapter 38 as we start working our way through this exposition? The theme of chapter 38, and you've got it there on your sheet, is that now that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi have been disqualified, the text has already given us that, and with Joseph, the favorite son, exiled to Egypt, that's not great, Genesis 38 describes the character transformation of the fourth-born Judah. And this is done in order to position him as righteous before our eyes to qualify him for the progression of the 315 seed. You following with me so far? Okay, classroom setting is over. I didn't have to send anybody to the principal's office. We're good. So with all of that in mind, let's work through Genesis 38, and that unfolds for us in three scenes. Three scenes we'll see in our time left. The first scene is character assessment, the unrighteousness of Judah. The unrighteousness of Judah and his seed, you could also say. So at the beginning of 38, Moses, the narrator, is intentionally trying to show us that Judah is unrighteous at this point. I mean, Moses is doing his best job to make Judah look extremely bad, really terrible, theologically unrighteous. There's no way the 315 seed is going through this guy at this point. That's what, that's what Moses is trying to give us here. So Moses does this in two ways. Let's look at the first way. The taking of foreign wives by Judah. Now we already know this is an uh (laughs) uh-oh. Not a good situation. Not a good situation. But in what Moses is trying to convey, this is all right, because this is letting us know that at this point in the narrative, Judah is unrighteous. By the way, we already know that. What did he do in the previous chapter? I mean, he didn't really stand up for Joseph, did he? No, he lied to his father, right? So Judah's not doing well so far. Let's read verses 1 through 6. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shuah, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er. Then she conceived again and bore a son, and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chezib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So geographically, Judah has departed from his brothers, and he eventually relocates to Chezeb or Kezeb, a Canaanite town, near Beth Shemesh. Chronologically, just to give you an idea, and I don't know that map's not the largest, but chronologically, this chapter covers, and this is important, so make sure you note this, this chapter covers about 22 years of time. 22 years of time. So you can piece that together by looking at later dates as it relates to Joseph in Egypt in, in Genesis. So 22 years this chapter covers... So Judah has left his brothers, he's relocated, and notice that he's immediately on pursuit for a wife. 
He finds a Canaanite woman, and they marry and become pregnant. Uh, Two points of emphasis here. Now, first off, this woman is a Canaanite. This is not a good situation. This is outside the family. And secondly, look at the word took in verse 2. This doesn't mean that Judah took her by force, but that his prime initiative was finding a wife not for companionship, Genesis 2, but to have children. Why? Because he himself, in his mind, is trying to propagate the idea that he can pass on the Genesis 3.15 seed. I mean, he's aware of all of this because his dad is Jacob. He's aware of all of this because his granddad is who? Yeah, Isaac. And then we keep going back to Abraham. I mean, he understands the reality that descendants from him will ultimately be the Messiah, the coming king. So he goes and gets married and immediately begins having children. Just look back at the narrative there. They bore three sons. And notice the rapid succession of the narrative. It basically is to demonstrate to us that the primary emphasis here is passing on his seed, having children. And he knows that Joseph is gone. And Joseph may never return. Again, it's hard for us to get that because we know the Joseph story. But in Judah's mind, man, Joseph is gone, the favorite is God, praise the Lord, maybe I can slip into the top spot here, get the blessing, have the kids, the Messiah, the king, all is well. That's what he's hoping for here. Notice here in verse 6, Judah acquires a wife for heir, his firstborn. This is where Tamar enters the story. This is a custom to arrange marriages. So not only is he taking care of his seed, getting married, having children, but now what is he doing? I mean, he's setting up his children so they can marry and they can have children. So Judah has been on a mission to pass on his seed, but he does so by taking foreign wives. He does so not marrying for companionship and love. This is all unrighteous behavior. But there's a second way that we see that Judah is unrighteous, and that is by the evil actions of Judah's sons. The evil actions of Judah's sons. Now, as I read verses 7 through 11, I want you to work with me here and take note of the fact that Moses, the narrator, he gives his own personal comments throughout this entire section. That's huge. So he's giving us divine insight on this entire situation. And remember, his goal is to let us know and for us to walk away at this point believing that Judah is the worst. He's unrighteous. There's no way he can, he can be the next in line. Verse 7. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now notice what Moses says. So the Lord took his life. See, Judah doesn't know that's why his son had died. But the Lord took his life, Moses tells us. Verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan... Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew, verse 9, that the offspring would not be his. Uh, And what he means by that is basically he knew his status and his offspring would always be linked to his brother. So he, he, he didn't want to share, he wanted no part in that. So Onan knew that his offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife... He wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. Notice verse 10, narrator comment. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. I mean, this is a bizarre story, right? (laughs) This is in the Bible. I'm not making this up. So not only was Judah unrighteous by marrying foreign wives, Judah's first two sons were unrighteous. 
And we're told this by way of narrator comment from Moses. Look at verse 7, look at verse 10. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now for Er, it doesn't tell us exactly what he did that was evil in the sight of the Lord. But the language here used describes in the Old Testament, is described in the Old Testament as illicit behavior, idolatry. Something wicked where the Lord felt it completely necessary to end his life. Her custom, Onan and Tamar marry. This custom provided males and females the opportunity to be fruitful and multiply. But unfortunately, their marriage didn't last long either. Look at verse 10. What he did, Onan, was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. Well, what did he do that was displeasing? Verse 9. He refused to be fruitful and multiply. We are told that he consistently engaged in sexual intercourse with his wife but he refused to inseminate her. That's what it tells us. I mean, it gives a a specific picture here. Verse 9, he wasted his seed on the ground. I'm not having a child with this woman because I don't want anything to do with her or my older brother. I want my own family is basically what he's saying. Well, Judah's shocked at this point because his sons keep what? They keep dying. Again, he has no idea why. He himself is unrighteous and deserving of death. But his sons just keep dying. Moses, he tells us why. They were displeasing in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord himself was taking their life. Again, this is to establish in our mind that Judah is unrighteous. He is an unrighteous man, and so is his family. Paul Twist, who I am indebted for, for the help that he gave me on this particular chapter, he says this, as both Er and Onan are deemed wicked in a narrative world where the son is often imitative of the father, the reader can only assume that Judah also falls short of God's expectations. So as it stands, Moses pulls together a massive amount of evidence to show that Judah is unrighteous. I think we get that point right now. Well, that brings us to a second scene. So not only have we seen the unrighteousness of Judah, but we come to the character reassessment, the innocence of Judah. So now we begin to see a subtle shift in Judah and his life. The innocence of Judah. You follow along as I read verses 12 through 15. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which was on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. Now at this juncture in the narrative, judgment is already out on Judah. But Moses, the narrator, begins telling us certain details that call us to begin reassessing Judah's character. That's very important. So what we see in this section is that Moses is providing details for us to show a little bit of empathy towards Judah. To sort of reassess our thinking of his character. He gives three details that help us with this reassessment. The first detail is he did not see the girl's face. And we're referring to Tamar here. He did not see the girl's face. Now after a considerable time, verse 12 tells us that Judah's wife dies. And he properly mourns for her. And then he heads to Timnah to return to his daily task where he's tending to his flocks. Now Tamar who is still in the know with the family, 
gets word that Judah's wife has passed and that he is single, so she plots to deceive Judah into sexual relations so she can conceive and have children. Now it's interesting to think about what Tamar is doing here. Why would she make a concerted effort to get involved with Judah? I mean, it doesn't seem that things have gone well with the family so far. Everybody seems to be dying. Well, Tamar knows about Judah's father, Jacob. She knows about Judah's grandfather, Isaac. She knows about Abraham. And she knows and understands their relationship to the one true God and what they mean in the ancient world. She wanted to be attached to that family. The same is true, if you remember back in the Genesis story so far, when Abraham and Isaac and those men are connected to people outside the family of God, there seems to be blessings that are attached. Remember, that was true when Abraham and Isaac, they interact with Abimelech. Remember, things just started going well for Abimelech, who was a Philistine king. So in Tamar's mind, She's trying to get in with the family because she knows that there is just a general blessing that comes with being involved with Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. We know that. So she's trying to get in. She wants a part of that. Of course, she's still upset that Judah's only son, Shelah, had grown up and was not given to her. It would have been custom for that to happen. So she removes her widow's garments and clothes, and she clothes herself like a harlot. She gets a veil. The, the, the NIV translate that uh, phrase or that expression to disguise herself. So she knows exactly what she's doing. She's going to disguise herself and then have sexual relations with Judah. Notice verse 15. This is very key. When Judah saw her. So he sees Tamar. He thought she was a harlot, prostitute, for she had covered her face. Notice the narrator comment that Judah thought she was a harlot, a prostitute. So in Judah's mind, he doesn't think that he's getting involved with Tamar at all. He didn't see her face. Her face was covered. So he assumes it's a prostitute, which would have been right because she was clothed like one in his mind but it's actually Tamar. The second detail that we get here to help us reassess Judah's innocence is he did not know the girl's name. Follow with me in verses 16 through 19. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. That's important. You can underline that. Moses is giving us that information. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He responded and said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? Now notice what she does here. She, she's trying to get something from him to be able to retain his what? His identity. His identity. So watch here in verse 18. And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. I want something that will identify you. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Verse 19, then she arose and departed, removed her veil, and put on her widow's garments. So Judah approaches Tamar and asked to engage in sexual activity. That is clear. His focus is solely on producing children, producing descendants. In response, Tamar agrees if he will be willing to give her a pledge. What can I get in return? Well, Judah says initially, oh, look, I'll give you a young goat. That would have been nice. Tamar says, yes, I will gladly take that, but I need more. So Judah hands over a seal, a cord, and a staff. Now, this seal and cord, uh, the seal would have been a cylinder of engraved stone that would have been rolled across uh, soft clay to be able to identify things, sort of like a signet ring, I think it's called later. That cord would have been used to actually hang that around your neck, so it was a valuable piece to have. 
The staff would have been a walking cane, probably had Judah's name on it, stamped with a seal. So Tamar accepts the pledge. They have sexual relations one time, and she concedes. Verse 18. So Judah has relations with Tamar, but Moses emphasizes the fact that he, Judah, did not know it was her. Now, I think we all agree that everything that's happening in this scene up to this point is horribly wrong, terribly sinful. What in the world are they thinking? This is atrocious. But the emphasis isn't on that because that is a given. We all understand this. We've seen this beginning in Genesis 2 that sexual relations are for one man and one woman in a marriage covenant. That's not what's happening here. But Moses, as he wants us to reassess Judah's character, is giving us insight to the fact that although he did commit sin by having sexual relations outside of marriage, he is innocent in the sense that he has no idea that it's Tamar. There's one more critical detail we get. is that he did not know the girl's motives. He did not know Tamar's motives. Look at verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enim? I mean, again, notice, I mean, even... Uh, his friend, even Judah's friend, the Adulamite here, is going uh, to a specific location asking for a temple prostitute. So he, even he doesn't know the details of Tamar's plan. End of verse 21. But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. So Judah sends off Herah, the Adulamite, to find the girl and give her the young goat that was promised and to also retrieve uh, the seal, cord, and staff. But as we just saw in the text... The Adulamite gets there and is able to find the girl because there are no temple prostitutes. So in terms of Tamar's plan, it absolutely what? It's working out so far, as bad as it is. So Judah decides to let the entire situation go because he doesn't want to be the laughing stock of the town. I mean, he was outwitted. We're talking Judah, a son of Jacob. He was outwitted by a prostitute. This would have been humiliating. So he doesn't recognize her at all. He doesn't recognize Tamar's face. He doesn't recognize uh, Tamar's name. He doesn't have any idea about her motives at all. He just knows that I need to have sexual relations with a woman because I need to have children because I want the Genesis 3.15 seed. That's, that's what he's doing here. This is a wild set of events. <laughs> well, don't miss the larger point. We as the readers, we play a role in this. We are given information that Judah doesn't know. Judah does not know how his sons died. He did not know that it was the Lord that killed him. He did not know why Tamar wanted personal items he didn't know that it was actually Tamar. He was flat out tricked. And even the Adulamite that went to find her did not know where she was. By the way, this is sort of setting up uh, a recognition or not knowing motif that we find later on in Genesis. When all of Joseph's brothers stand before him, they do not what? They do not know it's him. So this story is absolutely tied to the whole 37 through 50 narrative. So Judah is unrighteous. However, 
He seems to be innocent in this situation. So the door has now been opened up. The door has now been opened up. Although he is guilty of all of those sins, the fact that he doesn't know it's Tamar opens up the door for us to reassess his character as the narrative continues. And that takes us to our third and final scene. And our third and final scene of this great chapter is the righteousness of Judah. The righteousness of Judah. And so in this final scene, we come across four signs that show that his character has been transformed. Clearly it doesn't happen yet, and it has not happened yet, but it does. So four signs that Judah's character has been transformed. The the first sign is interesting. We get sort of a hint at this back in chapter 37, is that he has risen to be a leader amongst the brothers. He's risen to be a leader amongst the brothers. Now, I'm not going to go through this uh, like Eric did last week, but in chapter 37, Reuben says, hey, let's just throw Joseph in a pit and let him die. And then later on, Judah comes along and he says, well, it doesn't really profit us to kill him, so let's just sell him to the Ishmaelites. Uh, But it's interesting, if you look at the end of verse 27 in chapter 37, it says his brothers listened to him. That's interesting. It doesn't say that about Reuben, the firstborn, but it says once Judah throws out sort of his idea to deal with this situation, all the brothers rally around him and listen. That's, That's very interesting, that he's slowly starting to emerge as a leader in the group. And by the way, while Joseph is gone for a good time, throughout the rest of Genesis, who's the leader of the brothers while Joseph is away? It's actually Judah. So that's a hint that his character is transforming. Again, it's not the totality of it. That brings us to the second sign of his character transformation, and that is that he demonstrated true confession of sin. We can all relate to this one, right? I mean, for those of us who are in Christ, we have exhibited true demonstration and confession of sin. That's exactly what Jude is about to do here. Let's pick up in verse 24. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, and by the way, his character hasn't been transformed yet, just so you know. Bring her out and let her be burned. Verse 25. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. I mean, you imagine his face seeing his things. Verse 26, of course, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And notice here, this is interesting. And he did not have relations with her, Tamar, Again, so as time passes, three months, we're told, Judah becomes aware that Tamar is pregnant. Of course, he isn't thrilled about that. I mean, that's wild, his initial reaction, right? Yeah, bring her out and burn her. There's a couple instances of this in the Old Testament. Leviticus 20 and Leviticus 21 tell us that there are consequences, according to Old Testament law, where someone would be burned. But nevertheless, I don't think Judah is operating under Old Testament law here. Of course, it hadn't been written, but he's not really thinking righteously yet. So Tamar comes out face-to-face with Judah three months later and says, The one that got me pregnant, these are his things. And what do you know? She throws out the signet ring, which is the seal, the cords, and the staff. Again, picture Judah's face and his reaction. I was thinking of faces that I could put up here on the slide, and I really couldn't, couldn't come across one that would, make, that would capture that. Now look at verse 25. Tamar says to Judah, and I would recommend that you underline this in your Bible, and you'll see why. 
Tamar says to Judah, please examine and see. Please examine and see. Now remember the German theologian, uh, von Rod, he said that this story has no connection to anything related to Joseph. Well, this expression, please examine and see, that is the exact same expression that you find in chapter 37, verses 32 and 33, when the brothers ask Jacob to please examine and see the coat of many colors. It's the same expression. In fact, I went ahead and put these side by side, and you don't really have to be able to read Hebrew to get this, but if you notice, between verses uh, 20, 32 and 33 of chapter 37 and verses 25 and 26 of 38. If you start from right to left, you gotta do this thing right to left. And then notice, it's, it's all the same words. It's all the same expressions. That's important. Because what this does is it calls to mind all of Judah's sins as it relates to everything in chapter 37 of his mistreatment of his brother and his disrespect of his father in tandem with all of his sins with Tamar. All of his sin is coming to the fore here. That, that, that is the point. He has recognized his complete downfall for the whole first part of his life. Please examine and see. This draws to mind all of his sin. And brothers and sisters, let me submit to you that is this not true of us? When we came to faith in Christ, we recognized how wretched and sinful we really were. This is what Judah does. Notice verse 26. Judah recognizes his seals, cords, and staff. And then he pronounces Tamar more righteous than him. Now, of course, again, everything that's been going on here has been an absolute disaster. He's not saying, hey, Tamar, great job. You've been so righteous in this thing. Uh, the, the point is, is there's this comparison. I have been way worse. My sin has reached the heavens. It's gone down to the depths of the earth. I have done infinitely worse than you, Tamar. That's what, that's what he's saying. Look at verse 26. The exclamation point to his repentance is the fact that he did not have relations with her again at the end of verse 26. He did not have relations with her again. That is a critical sentence. He is no longer acting like he was. Not only is he confessing his sin and his unrighteousness and his need to be saved from the depths of his sin, but here he's saying, I am not physically acting in an immoral manner like I did previously. So not only has he risen to be a leader amongst his brothers, he's demonstrated true confession, third detail that shows his character transformation. And this is just only in God's providence. Verse 27, he becomes the father of twins. Becomes the father of twins. Verse 27, it came about at the time she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. Now, at first glance, uh, these final four verses probably don't seem like they attest to the character transformation of Judah. But when Tamar gives birth here, she gives birth to twins. Now, the immediate context, what is that taking us back to? That's taking us back to Jacob and Esau. And not only was there turmoil in the womb for them, what do we see here? <laughs> we see the same thing. It's as if the older and the younger are fighting for position coming out which one will uh, be first the exact same struggle that you see with Jacob and Esau is shown here to be true of Judah and Tamar's twins the younger one being the victor Perez again Paul Twist notes 
by representing Judah's line in the likeness of its patriarchal predecessor, the narrator not only affirms his character transformation, but impresses upon the reader its significance with reference to the line of the seed. Uh, This is more evidence to the fact that Judah is not like Judah used to be, but he has been transformed through his confession. He is now operating under righteousness. Well, there's a fourth detail, or fourth sign, rather, about Judah's character transformation, and we're not going to go through this one. We're going to save this for the coming weeks, and that is the subsequent Genesis narrative. So maybe if you walk out of here today and you're like, oh, that guy Lance, man, he missed it. He missed that one. Hold on. There's a few more chapters left in Genesis to show us that his character that we see at the end of 38 is prevalent through the remainder of the book. That Judah at the beginning, he's no more. It's the righteous Judah that we see. Now as we close our time uh, this morning, I'll put these up here and you can chat about them in your group if you'd like. But what this narrative does, and I think the timing of it is perfect as we come to Christmas break and we're off for a couple weeks, what this narrative does is it presents for us in chapter 37, Joseph, and chapter 38, Judah, that they are both righteous and have made themselves available to bring about the Genesis 3.15 seed and that line. But we're not going to find out who that line ultimately goes through until chapter 49, a few months from now. So make sure you're here as we continue our Genesis study. Enjoy your Christmas holiday season, and we'll see you back here in a few weeks. Let's pray together. God, we're grateful that this chapter is included in your word because we can all see ourselves here. The fact that we were unrighteous before you stepped into our lives and transformed our hearts. That's what we see with Judah. That you have positioned him in a way to bring about the Messiah and the King, the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's him uh, that we celebrate this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.